I realized that your ideas could be applied in different ways, in different industries, and have different types of contribution. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Dror Benchitrit. Dror is a multidisciplinary designer, artist, activist, and futurist who has recently launched Supernature Labs, a regenerative design and technology organization that seeks to trigger a massive change in the built environment by building communities like nature and with nature for the benefit of all life. What does this mean exactly? Well, you'll hear all about it in our talk. But in essence, it's a new approach to urban planning and construction that shifts cities from the traditional Cartesian grid to a more adaptive cellular planning model, allowing urban and building design to be more biophilic, biomimetic, regenerative, and community-oriented. It's complex and rigorous, and it is as hopeful as it is urgently important. Prior to dedicating his life to Supernature Labs, Dror made a name for himself designing many critically acclaimed projects across the fields of furniture, products, interior, architecture, urban planning, and public installation, including the Peacock Chair for Capolini, the Quadror Structural Support System, and a residential master plan for Nurai, a private island off the coast of Abu Dhabi. All of this experience has made for a fascinating life and has resulted in a passionate and driven advocate for ecological harmony. Here's Dror. I'm Dror Benchitrit. I'm based between New York and Miami. I'm a designer, futurist, activist, artist, um, kind of involved in a bunch of different things, mainly focusing right now on our new venture, Supernature Labs. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. That's a lot to unpack there, all of those things, <laughs> all those hats you wear. Let's go way back to before you even were wearing any hats, though. I like to start with the formative years. Can you tell me where you were born, what your hometown was like, your family dynamic, and the things that you were fascinated by in your youth? <laughs> so that's an interesting one. So I grew up in Tel Aviv as a little kid. I was always creating. I was always interested in art. I was always either building something or drawing something. I, I constantly remember imagining things and finding ways to articulate those ideas and always been using all kinds of medium to do that, whether it's uh, building puppetry or sculptures or uh, sketching drawings. I've always been attracted to this like mixed media, this uh, different tools to utilize to create my ideas, my, my thoughts. Were you in a creative family or were you kind of an outlier? I do like to think of both my parents as extremely creative, but not really practicing it. I think that it's only very, you know, late in my twenties that I realized that the combination of both my mom and my dad's talent is a reflection of what I'm doing, but none of them were practicing art or, or other creative forms. Was there a general environment of encouragement for these creative endeavors, these sculptures and, and puppetry? I'm really excited to hear about the puppetry, actually. <laughs> Did you have brothers and sisters that you could do this with, or are you on your own doing this? Yeah, I have only one sister that is uh, six years younger than me. We were not very close in our childhood, obviously, because of the age difference. But those creations have always been me... Uh, 
you know, on my own. But in terms of encouragement, absolutely. They've been very supportive besides the fact that from a very young age, I was a part of an art program in the Tel Aviv Museum, Museum of Art. For me, I think it's, it, it was an extremely important aspect of my life. I spent several days every afternoon going to the museum and learning from different artists that were providing I don't know if to call it mentorship or inspirational guidance, but it was all based on personal exploration. I've been very, very fortunate to be part of this unique program in Israel that was selecting, you know, a small group of kids and giving them a scholarship to, to study under this program. That sounds like a dream come true. If only all children had access to something like that, don't you think the world will look so different? Oh my God, absolutely. I'm so grateful for those years. It's been extremely unique. And I think that, you know, growing up, at, 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 even at those, uh, those ages, you simply realize that your childhood is quite different than your other classmates and, and peers. And I agree. I think it's a huge privilege that I got that I wish the whole world would have access to. <laughs> Do you find that having access to a program like that also kind of in those formative years would have had to have had an impact on how your brain processes information and how you see the world? For sure. Even just the environment of uh, Tel Aviv Museum of Art, which is an incredible museum, just walking inside of that space, walking inside of that building every single day, sometimes after hours where nobody else is in the museum and have oh, this best. intimate relationship with those pieces, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. So one sibling who's six years younger than you, and you're the oldest, so that means you had to be the pioneer of the teenage years in your family. What were you like in adolescence? And were you rebellious and angsty? Or were you just kind of driven and on a path? How were you expressing your creativity? Early on, I definitely was an introvert. I spent a lot of time by myself. I just loved diving into my world of imagination. I think it was only through high school that I kind of developed my creative social friends that an interesting creative exchange happened with like-minded people of my age. And, and prior to that, it was pretty much only through that program. And I would say that with my parents, it was never a significant dialogue. You know what I mean? They kind of mm -hmm. left me to do what I do. They find it special. They found it uh, unique and they embrace it, but embrace it by just, by just letting it be. Yeah, I can relate to that. It's a, a sort of drawers doing his thing and we have no problem with him doing his thing, but we also can't really engage him on a deep level about it. Yes, something like that. <laughs> so what were the college years like for you? And did finding a kind of creative exchange with people the same age, your kind of social tribe in high school, did that convince you that that's where you belonged and also kind of support your decision to study design? You know, obviously a gap between high school and university, which is the Israeli army uh, for three years. And pretty much during high school, it was very clear to me that I'm going to be an artist. And I knew that I'm giving, you know, the Israeli army three years of my life and then, and then I'm moving on with my own path. But something really interesting happened, which during the army service, I started to realize that I'm still applying the same creative thinking, but the expression of that was no longer drawings and sculptures, but they were tools and educational, you know, maquettes and models, demonstration elements. And I realized that I'm actually designing. So I kind of seeked 
to understand a little bit more what it means. And my first realization was, okay, so this is essentially art with function. What do I think of that in terms of my future career? Do I want to get into art with function or do I want to continue to do what I've done before? And I was just fascinated by how you can influence people's well-being, quality of life through the use of creativity in a more direct way. So after the army, I started looking for both art school and design schools. And I was just fascinated by design because that was kind of new and different to me from, from everything else. And I decided to go to the design academy in Eindhoven, which was until today, I'm so grateful for that experience. I think it was one of the most important choices I've made simply because it was, and it still is an extremely artistic school, extremely conceptual, and also a school that you really discover yourself finding ways to deliver on your own inspiration. I often design for the things that I want to see in the world because I feel strongly about their needs, regardless of, you know, the type of discipline that they belong into. That particular school gave me such a deep understanding on how to accomplish different things by collaborating with specialists and people that have the unique knowledge and capabilities to take it to where it needs to be. So what are the highlights and the projects that really shaped you professionally between college and now? You started your studio in New York City at 25, so that's pretty young. Did you feel naive or <laughs> it just seems like that takes a lot of moxie? <laughs> The word naive is an interesting one because at least for me, I'm always naive, right? At different levels of my life, at different kind of points, I'm always uh -huh. naive. And I'm, and I think that that's what gets me going, right? Yeah. I think if we knew what was involved in a lot of stuff, exactly. we'd be really intimidated, but not knowing what we don't know, <laughs> it seems so exciting. Exactly. So, I mean, it started with, um, you know, with a broken vase and it went all the way to, you know, large urban planning and master planning challenges. There has been a lot of benchmarks and kind of defining moments in my career. Obviously, my very first product that I put in the market, which was the vase of phases for Rosenthal, it was extremely influential on my career in many, 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 many ways. You know, it was essentially an expression of my own feeling at that time. You know, I really felt my naivete was broken by moving to New York and trying to build a practice, right? <laughs> and, uh, and being a young kid coming from the countryside of, of Eindhoven in the Netherlands, moving to New York City, thinking that things will just, doors will just open and, you know, you just walk in and, <laughs> and obviously it wasn't like that. Uh, it was, it was very challenging, but the Vase of Phases received such an incredible attention and was a huge success, both, you know, commercially for Rosenthal and both from a publicity standpoint for, for me in the practice. And it also came with a very interesting understanding of design responsibility. For me, this project was about talking about the beauty in experience and the beauty in taking ourselves through certain particular experiences that shaping us to become who we are, which never stop being relevant, right? And, and will never, ever stop becoming relevant. It's funny for me that still until today, 20 years later, I, I, I sometimes starts my lectures and talks with the vase of phases as an example of creating a connection between human and products. That was one. The peacock chair for Capellini was also a very important project for me that actually was born in a very, very, very similar way to the vase of phases. It was a personal experience. It was a personal story. It was about a breakup with a girlfriend and how do I express that in a piece of art in a chair in this case. At that point also, I was obsessed with transformation. 
you know, I used to kind of almost divide my practice into two, the physical transformation object and product that actually physically transform and metaphorical transformation, things like the vase that, you know, are essentially about evolution of change. And the peacock chair kind of sits in between because the folding of the sheets of felt because of this kind of approach that I took does not require any traditional upholstery technique or, or glue or, or anything else, just the pressure, uh, of one metal band all around. Uh, so for me, that was a transformation of form, but not a physical transformation of point A to point B. It was a transformation through the process. And that made me realize for the first time, okay, there's also that, right? There's also that kind of way of looking at transformation. And that brought me into a whole other world of fascination with um, physics and structures and material. And I think another huge defining point was the creation of Quadror, which is this four identical elements that connects together to form a structural system that also kind of articulate and open from a flat state to a three-dimensional state. And I've been obsessed with this geometry for several years, looking at more and more applications that this geometry can be beneficial from sawhorses to, to a table all the way up to structural support system for architecture and uh, exoskeleton for homes and sound barriers for highways and many other <laughs> applications. It's fascinating. And it, it does sound like you are both gifted with connecting the human experience to the expression in an object, but also very much a systems thinker mm. and able to distill things down to a modular essence that can then be I mean, this is essentially what Quadror is, can then be used in so many different applications, in so many different materials for so many different reasons. Right. I'm curious professionally, you know, the, the vase of phases was really successful, but how were you able to convince people to work with you on like architectural projects and city planning projects after that? How did you not get stuck in doing products? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a really good one. So Eric Chen, which has been somebody that wrote about my work for many years since the beginning, and is also uh, wrote the introduction to my recent book with Monicelli. He once came to the studio and said, Dror, you know, your work is very architectural. And I didn't really know what it meant. I went home and kind of his voice kept coming up in my, in my, in my head. And I thought, why is he saying that? Because I like playing with structures and with physics. And at that point, architecture was not part of my practice. Uh, I loved already at that stage to say that I work comprehensively across different design typologies and, and scale, but I wasn't doing any architecture at that time. But because of that comment, I started thinking of architectural ideas in the same system approach that I often think uh, with. So I came up with a series of architectural concepts, and then I just showed it to a few people. Um, one of those people that I showed it to was at the time a real estate marketeer and broker, now a very successful developer, Michael Schwo. And he said, I'm going to get you your first architectural commission. And we're going to have to make sure that you have the knowledge and the support system around you to execute uh, that project. He said, do you think you can handle a seven-story building? I said, sure. <laughs> Not knowing, obviously, what I'm getting into. Um, <laughs> but assuming that, you know, at that time, I had no uh, formal education in porcelain making or, 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 or to, orthopedic making with, you know, collaboration with Puma or, you know, any other aspect. It's, it's for me, design is a very collaborative effort. And I said, sure, you know, we're, we're, we're going to, you know, find the people to, 
to support the conceptual, the creation and pad us with what we need. He called me back and, and said, drawer, I have a 25 story building for you. Do you think you can handle that? Uh, and that was our first commission. I mean, actually that building did not get built. It broke ground. And then the financial crash of 2008 happened, but the oh, process. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, part, part of the design experiences, right? And architecture. But what's interesting is that the process was so unique and so different, uh, that Michael actually got us our second architectural commission, which was the Nurai Island in Abu Dhabi. That project, you know, was our first built architectural commission. We had, you know, an, an amazing support system of, of, of collaborators. And what was interesting for me is that the starting point was a very naive, poetic approach to an experience, right? Like I could not stop thinking about the fact that the client said, you know, think about the most you know, luxurious homes you can possibly imagine in an island setting. And they wanted like 30 of them. And I said, well, that's not very luxurious to live in a line of other houses and being number 17 and 16 on your left and another, you know, 12 on your, on your, on your right. So I said, you know, this idea that living on an island and having the privacy to feel as if you're the only person on the island while simultaneously you have a community, but the community is not visible, is very similar to, let's say, a luxury hotel where the service is done so seamlessly that you throw a towel and you look back and it's hanged back on the, on the hanger, right? So this is where we came up with this idea of the green carpet and presented it as a very childish concept of shoving everything underneath the carpet and appropriating the carpet as a, as a symbol of the Persian Gulf saying carpet making is originally from here. Why don't we treat the entire island as a giant carpet of vegetation? So that was in 2007 and they, and the client fell in love with the approach and called us back and said, the crown shake wants to build your vision. And I started laughing hysterically. And I said, I, I really have no idea how to build this. And, uh, <laughs> and they said, we know we've done, you know, our homework on the size of your team and your experience, and we will pad you with the knowledge that you're lacking. And I, just loved hearing that because that was the premise of the practice is we constantly pad ourselves with the knowledge that we're lacking to make sure that we can execute on, on, on our visions. Uh, so hearing that at that stage being project number two in our architectural practice was very refreshing and very exciting. And this project ended up breaking the records of the most expensive residential ever sold in the UAE at that time. It was also, you know, a huge scale for us. I mean, the, the total project was uh, north of a billion dollar. And at that time, you know, my portfolio was a few chairs and, and some tabletops and, you know, you put all of them together and they're still quite far from, from a billion dollar. So that's when I realized that your ideas could be applied in different ways, in different industries and have different types of contribution. And this is when I really fell in love with public art and with large architectural commissions. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. That's a perfect segue into Supernature Labs. From what I've read, it's a global alliance of designers, architects, urbanists, city futurists, engineers, neuroscientists, strategists, technologists, and activists, all addressing the need for regenerative urban communities across the globe. So, (laughs) hallelujah. That sounds good. Yeah, right? I I, I think I I read that from your press release, so... (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't know if we're all the way there yet. This is what we're striving to accomplish. And I think that we are 
you know, making major headways towards that global alliance. Well, let's start with the mission. Why did you feel the need to put together a collective like this and really start to amass a, a coalition of people who want to approach building communities in a more regenerative way? So two things really led led to that. Well, actually, maybe a few more. Turning 40, almost five years ago now, been a huge reflection point in my career where I guess everybody at this age kind of think like, okay, what have I accomplished so far? What what's What's my plan for the future? And I found myself asking a very, very, very different question um, than I typically ask before. You know, it's always been like, okay, we've done this, this, and this. What should we do next? And all of a sudden, I found myself asking, well, what does the world needs the most? And the answer flew out. I found myself sitting down for about four days, nonstop writing what now I call the Supernature Manifesto, which really has been me understanding that the future of the built environment needs to change and we cannot build cities the way that we are have been doing for you know the last several decades it was born from a couple of different things one is this understanding that the way that we treat each other the way that we treat ourselves, our relationship with money, our relationship with consumption is all just going in a very, very, very challenging path. And I think that the build environment have a huge contribution to that. Obviously, living in New York for 20 years, first loving the city for the incredible access that you have to absolutely everything, right? Culture and people of different kind of this beautiful melting pot. Um, but at some point you realize that this grid system of New York might seem simple, might seem easy to find your way around, but also creates a very aggressive environment, also creates a very aggressive behavior from people that, that, that spend a lot of time in it. And the reason is, I mean, obviously there's not that much access to nature with the exception of Central Park and a few more. There's also, you know, those harsh, massive buildings, but this logic of blocks with intersections between each one of them, every few minutes you are in a conflict zone. You would crush if you're driving or you would run over if you're, if you're not paying attention, right? So I felt that there must be a different approach. There must be a different typologies that we can live in that are not just what we are familiar with right now. And, and I'll explain, right? Like if you live in a city, the chances are that you're either living in a townhouse, a low rise, a mid rise, a high rise and a skyscraper, right? That's, that's, that's pretty much the options. And if you're living outside of the city, then you are either in a private home, a semi detached home or, you know, maybe other forms of like small communities, row house or something like that. But, you know, very limited vocabulary of possibilities within the suburbs and the city which is where the majority of you know the world live in without forgetting about a billion people today living in informal housing all around the world so understanding that urbanization is not stopping anytime soon we love cities we want to live in close proximity to other people we enjoy the serendipity of city we enjoy the access to opportunity the access to culture but there has been two facts that have blew my mind you know one is the fact that we are scheduled to double the built environment somewhere between the next 30 to 40 years oh my god and second that we're going to double the land coverage of cities in the next 20 to 30 years Oh my God. And those two facts, they're just, That's they're terrifying. just terrifying, right? Like it's so hard to comprehend. You fly over massive cities like New York and LA and Shanghai and Tokyo and so forth. And you're thinking, how are we going to 
double that amount of infrastructure, that amount of structure within our lifetime. You know, that's just crazy. Every major city in the world is suffering from major traffic, major pollution issues, and many more. And if we're just going to continue, I mean, that's just, that's just insane. There are many initiatives that are happening, but when I started Supernature, I just could not find a comprehensive approach. So this is one thing. Second, you know, I really wanted to shift away from being a service provider. I think I started my career more of an artist working within the design discipline, creating ideas that I believe in. And slowly you get client, you kind of start to follow the service path. And I just did not enjoy that very well. So I started Supernature as a more of a laboratory to think about new ways of planning, new ways of creating different environment and different experiences. That was the motivation. And I think that the biggest, most significant discovery was when I realized that we don't have to anymore design streets and buildings adjacent to the streets but we can use nature's most common geometry, which is the cellular logic, and create cellular communities of different density that I realize, okay, this is a very unique moment in time where we have the technological capabilities, where we have the manufacturing capabilities to accomplish something like that. I'm fascinated by all of this, but it seems to me that the logic is so sound. Cellular communities makes a lot of sense. But in order for this to really work, we have to convince a lot of minds between now and the doubling of the built world, right? Absolutely. <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of minds. Absolutely. And this is exactly the challenge. I mean, yeah. the challenge is mostly educational. Actually, two things. Amy, one is we decided very recently to start a foundation and that's the main focus of the foundation is to continue to evolve the research that we need to support more and more data and simulation around this logic. And second, to educate about the power of conducting neighborhoods like that. But you're right. I mean, there is, there are so many different stakeholders that needs to be in line with this approach for it to happen. This is why it's not easy, but, uh, but this is also what's exciting about it. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, it's just enormous in the complexity. Can you distill it down a little bit for us? I mean, you did a great job helping me understand the purpose of the foundation is to evolve the research and to um, educate. Can you tell me a little bit about like what the moving parts of that are? Yeah, so let, let me maybe start by sharing uh, some of the motivations for the cellular logic and then kind of explain the different ways that we're taking right now to bring it to reality. The first assumption was very basic and very naive, right? Nature does not break things into blocks the way that we do almost everything, right? And if you look at the natural aggregations, whether it's cell under the microscope or, you know, organizations of planetary system, you see this similar geometry, which we call the Voronoi pattern, which is a cellular logic, right? And the first investigation was, what if we apply that same approach to urban planning? Are there any benefits? And we start discovering a few very important elements, and then that list start growing and growing and growing, and it just does not stop. The first is the fact that we can create urban environments that have the same kind of density as, you know, Manhattan, super, super dense environment, and we are able to reduce 
roads and road infrastructure by more than 50%. Hot damn. <laughs> exactly, right? That? Exactly, <laughs> oh right? Oh my god. That's, I know. It's 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 been a huge turning point for us in understanding that you know that fact alone is is enormous, right? Because infrastructure is just an insanely not just costly but something that if you can reduce and still move around in a more efficient way is great one of the biggest realization is not just the reduction of the road and road infrastructure but also the fact that you actually can get from point a to point b faster and safer the reason for that is actually quite simple so if you think of a typical four-way intersection requires that Parts of the traffic, parts of the moving parts will stop while other, you know, move. So each intersection is this conflict point, right? There's no natural flow. When you look at how cell formations is organized, you realize that there are no four ways crossing. There's only three ways connections, right? So traffic can flow in a much more efficient way. Now, a traditional four ways crossing have 16 points of collision versus three ways crossing have only three points of collision. So it's a much safer place, which also in some cases allows you to reduce traffic signals, which is a major infrastructure and costly elements. So that's one aspect, right? I have to stop and ask another question. Oh, this is so exciting. I mean, first of all, like roads are right now a necessary evil, but they've always bothered me because they reflect so much sunlight and they block the earth from receiving water and sunlight and they, they just don't feel natural. Right. But they also create this really hostile acoustic environment. And I'm wondering if cellular logic will make the world sound better. 100%. So, I, I, I mean... I mean, I'm so excited. <laughs> I mean, I know that we're not going to even be able to scratch the surface, uh, even if we're going to continue several hours. <laughs> Don't do it. I like being naive and excited right now, Drew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. So let, let me give you a couple of things. So look at the traditional percentages of a high dense environment, somewhere between 50 to 60% built. I'm talking about land coverage. And the rest is sidewalk and roads, right? When you think of parks in the built environment right now, those parks are areas that were designated as here you cannot build, meaning I've taken away an area that buildings could occupy. And I've deliberately said, you can't build on those areas. So, so whatever those percentages are, they're not part of the grid system in terms of an allowed space, right? When you look at the cellular logic, the way that we've created, we're basically given that 50% reduction in road infrastructure to natural areas that are inside of each one of those cellular communities. So, First of all, think about the fact that everybody's facing a park, which is incredible in terms of the quality of life and therefore also real estate value is higher if we're, if we're speaking to, to the developer mind. But think about the fact that you don't have to cross any road to go to the park. The road is behind you in a way and, 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 and the park is there. So think about the safety of kids. Think about the fact that you can let your kids go down to play in the park and not worry that they're crossing any streets. Besides the fact that if you're now starting to connect all of those inner green spaces between supercells with a very simple kind of pedestrian underpath, you get something that looks like a very complex... Like a neural network? Neural network, exactly. This is the first time in which pedestrian circulation and vehicular circulation are no longer side by side. I mean, you're typically walking in the same exact path that the vehicles have with the exception of, you know, one-way streets and things like that, that, that you can walk and the car cannot walk. But, but with the cellular logic, now 
pedestrians are able to move from a forest to a forest or from a park to a park or from, you know, whatever you want to use that natural inner space. You know, it can be urban farming. It could be open space for, for, for recreation, for anything, but, uh, but complete separation from, from vehicular. So talking about sound, yes. You're going to reduce sounds by the reductions of the road. You're going to reduce sound because cars are no longer having to make so many full stops because they're basically, you know, just flowing. That flow have also that ripple effect of less pedestrians are there. So less interaction of conflict in that, in that regards. You know, the, the, the green space function as a buffer, right? Like it's basically muffling the sound. You have a lot more birds and a lot more. Yeah. Po- bees and squirrels. Exactly. Yeah. Not only that, but the breeze rippling through leaves is way more pleasant than a, a car squeaking to a stop. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, so there's enormous amount of benefits, right? Like if you think about like flood issues in cities because of the porous uh, nature of, of, of concrete and asphalt. Now you have more than 25% of your land coverage be soil. Now we haven't even talked about the health benefit of soil alone, right? So there's tremendous benefits to the fact that you have so much soil, which one provides carbon sink. Second, you know, there are so many studies that shows that, you know, if kids spend an average of 10 minutes stepping on soil, you can reduce so much of the need for, you know, retinin and other medications. There are so many studies that shows the value of being physically grounded, putting your feet on natural soil where there's no, you know, layers and layers of concrete underneath you. There's just such a long list of benefits to, to all of it. So is this all theoretical or do you have some built situations that are gathering data right now that prove out these theories or where, where are we with this? I say we because I'm, I'm on the mission now. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Well, first of all, this is how we're building our alliance, right? By making more and more people wanting to see the world shifting towards that type of community creation. And we need as many, you know, supporters and believers as, as, as we can to stop urban sprawl. I mean, essentially, we've put this mission, which, which for me is the biggest aspect, right? Like if we're talking about 30 to 40 years, then we're in a race. We're in a race to make sure that communities are not building more and more Cartesianal communities, but evolving into this bioplanning cellular logic. And we know that it's going to influence the well-being of, of people. It's going to influence ecology. And it's also going to tremendously influence, you know, the economic aspect, which we can talk about that uh, as well in a separate way. So Supernature's efforts right now is starting to get uh, subdivided into different disciplines within the organization. One is development. We have right now a few projects in Mexico, Costa Rica, and discussions in other Latin American countries and a couple of discussions in the Middle East. Um, and we basically want to open up as many conversations as we can with large development, whether they are private or governmental or, you know, municipal decisions, we know that as soon as we're going to be able to prove one community like that and not just draw from the data that we're able to support theoretically, but actually measure that success physically, we're going to have much, much, much stronger ability to influence, you know, the world. Obviously, it takes very specific people to be early adapters, people that are willing to take the risk on something that was never built like that before. And that's tough. And that basically requires me traveling to a lot of places around the world and talking to a lot of people. So, so that's on the development side. There is constant work 
to improve our communication from modeling perspective, you know, like modeling traffic simulation, modeling construction, modeling certain patterns of behavior that will come as a result of that. And we are now doing all of this kind of under the general umbrella of, of, of supernature, but this is where the foundation is going to come because we realize that, you know, it's, it's, it's endless how much we need to continue this, this efforts. I mean, there's just so much to expand. So one of the things that we really like to do is to bring large organization and large corporations that care about this, this mission and let them sponsor specific segments of research. For instance, we want to invite large mobility companies like car manufacturers to investigate further the entire mobility aspect of bioplanning. We want to bring large construction organization to provide some more supporting data on construction efficiency. I mean, I didn't speak about that, but there is a tremendous construction efficiency to a cellular logic. You know, when you think of what is the most complex aspect in construction, it's, it's, it's logistics, right? Like you have to phase the construction in such a way that you know exactly how long it takes for, you know, to pour foundation. And as soon as the foundation is ready, you can put the first structural elements. Once the skeleton of the building is done, then you can put your window and fenestration and then you can start you know laying out all of the mechanical elements i mean i mean all of this is basically complex logistics of construction now when you are thinking of cellular deployment think about a kitchen that is a that is a round kitchen where you don't need to move anywhere like your sink is at arm reach on one side your fridge is at arm reach you know, behind you, your stove is, is, is on the left and you don't move so much, right? Like you can cook a lot faster like this. So that, that, that's probably the easiest way to talk about like building cellular communities, right? Like you have your deployment center in the middle and you have your crane or any other equipment basically providing all around. What is the exact percentage of reduction in time? on several systems we have a lot of research to do around that right like if you if you build in concrete under x amount of stories you can save 20 percent. if you're building average of 20 stories you save that percentage and so forth of course we want to get to a future where construction sites are made with only modular components and ideally only regenerative material but we're far from from that even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Yeah, I can imagine this cellular logic too has to be indigenous to the land and climate too, and the kind of weather systems that it will have to deal with and all of that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, there are different climate conditions requires different different architectural needs. You know, tropical setting, desert settings, uh, all of those are nuances that are very specific to to where you work. I mean, we haven't even touched on talking about regulations and zonings, which is probably one of the biggest challenges in the world today. But I'm somehow optimistic in that regards because I'm thinking, okay, everybody's understanding that, you know, zoning needs to change and zoning are being changed rapidly all over the world because our life have changed. We're no longer going to one area to shop for groceries and that, you know, everybody understanding today that this aspect of mixed use is the most logical way to construct communities, right? Like this idea that I can go downstairs and get all of my necessity in a walking distance, what we call the 15 minute city. So yeah, there's a lot on the regulatory side, but what we are providing right now is so different, is so new that we can only operate in places that are open to having a very, very kind of close dialogue with us on zoning changes. And if the authorities, if the municipalities are not open to to that, then we're just not there at the, at the moment. I do want to ask you a little bit about you personally, but even though I know that Supernature Labs is probably the bulk of your life right now. Before I do, I would love to know, for anybody who's listening who wants to learn more or get involved or even support, where would I send them? Yeah, thank you. We need a lot of support. On our website, on supernaturelabs.com, we have uh, a couple of different emails for different uh, engagement and involvement. And at this point, we're looking for different team members that we're searching for. We are looking for developers and municipalities that are interested in exploring this approach. We're looking for supporters for the foundations. There's a whole tech initiative that at the moment we put aside because we realized the complexity of the tech platform that we want to build and we want to do it with a partnership with a strong technology company. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's, I mean, we're talking about the build environment, right? Like <laughs> it, it includes everything. You know, my first question for you, Drawer, is this is an enormous undertaking. I'm certain that nobody would undertake something like this if you weren't absolutely 100% passionate about it, which is what we need, I think, to shift the paradigm of building communities so dramatically. If I could bring it back to you, my question is, how is this process changing you? Where are you growing throughout this? And where are you also finding within yourself resistance that you need to break down? Wow. That's a, that's a very important question. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I realize and I'm keep on reminding myself is that this is much bigger than me, my ideas and my creation. You know, coming from being an artist where you control the end result, you know, it's clear to me that this effort is about aggregating a lot of different aspects, different players, different, different opinions, different approaches. I need to really be comfortable not being comfortable. There's so many topics and so many aspects that I'm just starting to gain knowledge about. And the more we dive into each one of those aspects, you realize that it's just endless. You know, there's just so much more and more and more to dive into. And I need to be very, very comfortable in running an organization that evolve in this very liquid-like 
process, right? It's impossible to just control it all. Well, it seems to me it's it's going to have to almost grow in a cellular way. And as one person, if you try to manage or be knowledgeable or even try to control the whole ecosystem, that would restrict it in ways that aren't healthy. I can feel like, how do I nurture this thing and give it as much support and nourishment as possible right. without imposing myself in such a way that I end up accidentally restricting it. Absolutely. You know, and it's a lot, a lot of kind of self-work because it's very hard to prioritize when you having a hard time to assess the importance of certain aspect. Oh yeah, of course it would be. <laughs> so you, you know, don't even I, know what's important or I, not yet. Exactly, exactly. And I think that it's a very fine balance because there's certain things that are, you know, decisions that you have to make yourself, decisions that you have to do as a group. After running my own design practice for, you know, close to 20 years, you realize that this is a whole different beast. This is a whole different way of evolving. It's a very interesting challenge. Well, more power to you, Dror. I hope that you grow into an enormous, thriving tree within a really healthy ecosystem. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is so fascinating. I feel like I'm right on that, that space where I know enough to be excited and not enough to be daunted quite yet. But I'm thrilled that you're undertaking this adventure slash mission. And in the process, you can't help but bring people together under a collective movement. That's what it's going to take, a really large-scale movement. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was really a pleasure, Amy. Hey, thanks for listening. To see images of Drawer's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if what you heard today resonated with you, would you please consider giving us a rating and a review to help others find these inspiring stories? We really appreciate it. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Elana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. 